Well, good morning, Fellowship family. It's great to have you with us. I just got back from Southeast Asia, and I was 13 hours ahead of you last weekend. And last night, I made the threshold from jet lag to reality, and I'm finally back on our time zone. So it's great to be back, and uh, I'm actually going to be sharing that, that trip a little bit more on Easter, during our Easter service. Um, but today, we also celebrate the launch of our new campus over in the Highcrest neighborhood. That is happening as we're meeting. They begin at 11 o'clock. So uh, what a joy, what a a day of celebration as we see God continuing to expand our reach here in the city of Topeka. Hey, um, as we continue this series called The Story of Us, we're coming to the life of Jesus and we're looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And this story so far has been that story from Genesis to Jesus. And we said it when we began this whole picture, this whole story of us, that, that even before creation began, Jesus was there. He was, he is, he always shall be. And, and as, as we develop this and, and respond to who Christ is, we're going to see that all of Scripture points to him. And I want to really challenge you this week with that picture of the person of Christ. Who is the person of Christ? I want to kind of share a story just as we begin of my own personal journey towards understanding the authentic Jesus. I had grown up in the church and uh, my senior year of high school, any seniors here this morning? You can raise your hand. We will still love you. Yes, uh, seniors, you're going to be graduating in a few months. I remember my senior year, it was one of the lowest points of my life. My family was going through a financial crisis. They were also going through a relational crisis, and it kind of gave me a crisis of faith. And I grew up in a church. We always went to church, but it wasn't always, you know, a church that showed you the joy of Christ. They shared the gospel of of Jesus, but then it was fairly legalistic and had a lot of regulations. So I knew when I was 18 what a Christian doesn't do. They don't do this, and they don't do that, and they cancel Christmas, and they don't have fun. And I really didn't know what that joy was like in a relationship with Christ. And at that time, a bunch of my friends were just chucking their faith. It was the faith of their parents, but it wasn't theirs. And we see this very common. This is common in the United States that the kids we bring to church with us, if they don't own that faith, if they aren't caught into that and, and contributing with their faith in a local family, they tend to, when they get the car keys, drive away from the church. That's very common. And we don't see them until their early 30s. So half their lives when they're in their 30s are away from a life-giving church. And so my friends were doing this, and I wondered, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this religion or this faith my parents have lived out and shared with me? And instead of chucking it, I decided to be honest and authentic. And I wanted to at least look at what had been given to me and assess it from as best as I could understand it. And so I decided to do a journey, a search for the authentic Jesus, not just that whole concept of faith, but I really wanted to know the object of my faith, Jesus Christ. Who is he? How do the scriptures share him? And what does it shout in the Bible? What's the key point about Jesus? I wanted to get this before I then could decide what I wanted to do with it. And so I dedicated the next six months to really searching and trying to find the authentic Jesus in the scriptures. And I did a study that I'd never done before. Although I used other books, 
my primary source would be the Bible because I believe the Bible was reliable. It was authoritative in my life. And I wanted to see just what the Bible, God's word said, who Jesus was. And then I could decide. I could make that decision. And as a result of that, my faith was refreshed. It was renewed. I owned my faith. It wasn't the faith of my parents only. I accepted that. And then I decided I wanted to give my life away to that. So what I want to do over these next three weeks with you is I want to look at the authentic Jesus. I want to look at his identity this week. Next week, we'll look at his work. What did he come to do? And then on Easter, we're going to celebrate the person and the work of Jesus as we celebrate the hero of all heroes on that. And we've given you handouts uh, today when you came in. We want you to invite your friends and family, people who are not connected to a church. We're not about taking people from other churches. They're plugged in there. Leave them there. (laughs) God wants them there. But people who aren't connected to a church who may be distant from God, we want you to invite them to celebrate Easter with us in two weeks. And that's April Fools, and we're not fooling, okay? So uh, let's take a look at this on this week. And this is the Bible lens that we have looked at. Most of the events from Genesis to Jesus happen in this area. And the life of Christ is even smaller. And the historical Jesus, what we read about in the scriptures, is that he was born in Bethlehem. He died in Jerusalem. And after Herod the Great died, he came back into uh, Nazareth, and that's where he grew up. His ministry was centered in the north part of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum. I've gone to these places, and you can verify that these were actual places at the time of Christ. Archaeological evidence points to a historical person named Jesus. But there's something more. There's something more. Jesus didn't just claim to be a man. He claimed to be God. And so what I want to kind of talk to you is answer this question is how can we say that Jesus is God? And there's five rationales in which as we look at the scriptures, we can conclude Jesus is presented in the scriptures as God. And the first one is this, biblical prophecies, Old Testament prophecies long before Jesus was born pointed to a Messiah. Uh, someone from God who would come and bring people back to God. And if you want to write a number down in the Old Testament, there are 400 references to this Messiah who would come. He would come from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of Abraham. He would bring people back. He would, he would give his own life for the sins of people. Isaiah 53 is one of the most clearest pointing to the work of Christ. When it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned each one to his own way, but the Lord God has laid the iniquity of us all on him, on that future Messiah who would come and live and die for us. And that prophecies were fulfilled. And and that's one thing. Prophecies were something that were written before the thing happened that would look forward to it. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled it because in the New Testament, to make the defense for Christ and that he did fulfill those prophecies, there are 353 references to Old Testament prophecies referring to Christ that are mentioned. So the New Testament writers wanted us to know that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. When Jesus is introduced to, uh, to Nathaniel, Philip brings him and he says this, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law 
And also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, there's two things here that we kind of see that Philip says. First of all, we, he is saying basically Moses wrote about this, the prophets wrote about it, all those prophecies in the Old Testament, we have found the one who fulfills them. His name is Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is a man, but he's also God. And we see the man part where he was Jesus of Nazareth, which is the city Jesus grew up in, a small place at the time of Christ, probably only 400 people. But he's also the son of Joseph, so he linked it right to a human family. In the Middle Eastern world, you are known by being a son or daughter of your father. Your father was that key head person of the household. If I were to go back to one of the cities where my grandfather grew up in the Middle East, uh, I would be Ibn, Ibn Abed. And as soon as I said Ibn Abed, everyone would trace it, would go in their mind, the Rolodex would spin, and they'd go, yes, oh, Ibn Abed, welcome family, welcome cousin. Everyone calls each other cousins. And so you're known as the son of, and that's Jesus. He was the son of Joseph, a worker in Nazareth. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. A writer of Hebrews, if you don't know, Hebrews is, a, is written to all the Jews scattered throughout the world to show them that Jesus is that Messiah that they have been looking for. And the writer of Hebrews, first chapter, first verse says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Look at this. This is how he starts off. He doesn't explain it for four chapters and then gets to this point. He starts out and he goes, long ago, all those prophecies look forward to one person, and it is Jesus. And he is the heir appointed, heir of all things, and he created the world. And so you have him professing in this first part that Jesus is God. He was there in the beginning. And that way, that's what we know, and that's what we have celebrated about Jesus. Way back in the beginning, before the world was created, he had us in mind. He had us in mind. These prophecies were fulfilled through him. His teachings also were exclusive. How many teachers do we have in the room here? Shout it out, teachers. Yes, we celebrate you. And we celebrate um, the, the knowledge and experience that God has given you and that transfer from you into the lives of your students. And I think it's the joy of every teacher, if you're humble, <laughs> to celebrate your, your students grabbing what you've given and taking them beyond what you have given them. I always love that, to see people go beyond what I've invested in their lives. But when Jesus, he was a teacher unlike any other teacher, he made many statements that were, ex that were exclusive about him. Look in this one where he says this in John chapter 10. And Jesus is speaking here to a group that were, they were not for him. They were, they were people who were skeptical of his teachings. They rejected who he claimed to be. And they were known as scribes and Pharisees. They were leaders in the Jewish religion. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, called them bad shepherds. And when you say bad shepherds, you were going back to the Old Testament because that's how the prophets saw the priests who were, who were kind of corrupt and used their power and position to become wealthy. And so Jesus um, really called them out. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, look at verse 27 of, of John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. Let's just look at that phrase. Now, you would never, if you're a teacher, you would never be ludicrous if you say, and I give to you, students, I give eternal life. 
Yeah, you'll never perish. None of us would do that unless we're God, right? Unless we could do that. His teachings were very exclusive. He said, um, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And look at this last statement. I and the father are one. Now, reading this in 2018, it's easy to kind of look at that and go, yeah, we're kind of one. Because we know that song. You know, we are the world. We are the children. We are the one who make a better life. So let's start giving. Remember? Am I dated? I'm a little dated with that song, okay? But we like those unifying terms, and we like those pictures to draw us closer. But this was a statement that was an exclusive statement. He's saying, I am God. And the reason we know that he was understood to say this is the scribes and the Pharisees, if you look at verse 31, they picked up rocks or stones to stone him. Why? Because he, a man, was claiming to be God. That was the picture. Jesus, his teachings were to draw people to him to be saved by him. But it's not just his teachings. It's also his claims. Who do you claim to be? John really develops this from John chapter 7 all the way to John chapter 15 with the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus made these claims about himself. You may have heard them if you grew up in the church. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. You are the branches, John 15. Uh, in one, in, in, uh, in John chapter 14, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This statement of I am was a very personal statement of a name of God. And where do we get this? In the Old Testament, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses said, okay, I know I'm to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Who am I to say sent me to them? I mean, give me some credibility. What did God say? Tell them, and he gave a new name, I am sent you. The God who was, who is, and ever shall be. That's me. You tell them God sent you. I am sent you. And Jesus said this in John chapter 8 when the scribes and Pharisees were wondering who he is. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones around the temple to try to, st- to stone him because, again, he was claiming to be God. But here this statement is, is he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many in our world today are offended by this statement of Jesus. It's so, it's so narrow that there's no way to God except through Jesus. Where does the Christian church get it that without Jesus, there is no way to God? Right here. Jesus claimed to be the no other way. He claimed to be the only way to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. This sounds, um, this sounds really exclusive. And I would just say, don't go self-righteous on this one. There is no other way to God except through Jesus, but the invitation is to whosoever believes. So the invitation is very inclusive, but the way is very exclusive. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. Where does the church get Jesus? The words of Jesus. And so his claims were very personal. But then also his character. His character was perfect. In other words, any of us could claim to be God. My dad had a carpet installer named Kenny, 
And one day Kenny came to work and he said, hey, I am Jesus. And we all go, Kenny, you're not Jesus. We see how you live. I know, but I'm here to save all people and I am Jesus. Kenny, you need help. And so we got Kenny help and he checked in for help. And he stayed in for multiple months. And help convinced Kenny he wasn't Jesus. Any of us can claim. But very few of us can live up to who we claim to be. What do we see in the gospel account of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John? All of those four different perspectives of the same person of Jesus. What do we see them? Well, we see them calling out character flaws in each other. From time to time, the the disciples were jealous of each other. They were stratifying. They would ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? They would, they would and, and the other disciples would be indignant about that. You have Peter denying Jesus, not once, but twice and three times. I mean, that, that was, that's, that's a character flaw of faith right there. So you don't have the disciples being these perfect, holy people. You have them flawed. But what do we see about Jesus. We see Jesus without sin. And every one of them who spent time with Jesus, John, one of the closest associates of Jesus, writes this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And look at this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus here isn't just presented as the light, as God himself, but also as the one who saves us from our sins. And only God can do that. He's not just the sinless savior, he's also the perfect sacrifice in this picture. And John makes that case throughout. He said, light entered the world, but the world loved darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because we don't want to change. We like life on our own terms. And Jesus came and showed us who we really are and who he is. But he also lived for us and he died for us and he rose again. His character was in line with his claims. But then the final thing, the fifth thing that I think really clarifies it in the scriptures is one event. And this event, when it happened, immediately all the followers of Jesus said, he was who he has said he was. Before they were unclear, but after this event, they were bold and confident and crystal clear on the identity of Jesus. And that has to do with the resurrection The resurrection of Jesus in the scriptures is presented not as a fable, not as a myth, not as a hallucination, but as real, but as reality. And yes, it was a supernatural event. And I know the human mind, especially in this day and age, doesn't like to to even consider a supernatural event, but it was. And we believe that to be true. As a matter of fact, those who followed Jesus and the first century followers of Jesus, he, they, they declared it as of first importance. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Look at this. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. When I say in accordance with the scriptures, he's saying he didn't have the New Testament at this time when 1 Corinthians was written. He had the Old Testament prophecies, those 400 prophecies in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is again. And that he appeared to Cephas, also another name for Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also all the apostles. Last of all, to as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And what he's saying is, look, the resurrection didn't happen in a dark alley down or, you know, a, a, a weird road in Jerusalem. It didn't happen where someone was walking through the woods and stumbled across these golden scrolls and read it and wrote a big book about it. And now we have a massive religion for one person. This happened because uh, it happened out in the center of town. It happened for all to see. He said, if you question this, go travel to Jerusalem. There's 500 eyewitnesses who saw a risen living, physical body of Jesus after the resurrection. Some of them have died, but most of them are still living when he wrote this. Go and talk to them. So it could be verified at the very same place and locality where it happened. In other words, the the first century followers of Christ didn't question this claim that Jesus was God. After the resurrection, that became the foundational identity of Jesus. I want you to think with me real quick because there's a lot of cynical, skeptical analysis of the Bible in modern scholars today. And they basically say that this word that we have has been written by the church. The church made Jesus God. And they wrote about him hundreds of years after the time of Christ and made him into God because they wanted to declare him and have power over people. And that has been debunked as false news, fake news, before this whole term fake news was invented. It's been debunked for hundreds of years. I don't know why people still believe that. But the reality is, is if you look at how the New Testament scriptures came to us, Within 15 years of the resurrection, we have a written, received, and professed statement about Jesus that was shared not just by one church, but all the churches who follow Jesus. Within 60 years of the resurrection, we have the whole formed New Testament written, received by the church. And it had a clear statement of the identity of Jesus. This is, folks, the church did not make Jesus God. Jesus made the church, and we need to realize that. His resurrection, that they believed him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. There was no problem with them accepting that, not just by one, but by all in that first century, so much so that they were willing not only to receive it, but live for it and take this and advance it to the end of the known world in their generation and die for it. Ten of the 11 remaining disciples literally were martyred for it. Rome said, Caesar is God. Christians said, Jesus is God. Rome said, 
make Caesar your God or die? And they said, gladly die. Peter himself crucified upside down. He didn't want to be crucified like Jesus was. He didn't count himself worthy of that. But he died for his faith that Jesus truly is who he said he is and did what he came to do. Folks, you, you may really enjoy and be you know, entertained by Lord of the Rings and all the other fairy tales. We may even live as characters and dress up and celebrate Star Wars figures. David Hinkle is right back there, and if he could, he would be dressed as one of them right now. <laughs> but he wouldn't die for that story to go on, and neither would we. These people were willing to give their lives for the reality of the identity of Jesus. And so it comes down to our decision. How can we say that Jesus is God? Time and time again during the life of, and ministry of Jesus, he would turn to people who were following him or who was teaching him. He said, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? This is a really key moment in our talk here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because the claims of Christ, the character of Christ, the resurrection all point to his identity. Do you? Do you see him for who he is presented clearly in the scriptures to be? Because we can't deny it. We just can't deny it. It's, it's there. The Bible puts him forth as Jesus, fully God, fully man. In, in John chapter 20... Uh, John writes this and kind of gives a whole summary to the account of Christ in verse 30 and 31. It says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, he kind of says, yeah, I didn't include everything in the life of Christ. And later on in John, John chapter 21, he says, if all the things were written, the world would not have enough books to hold all that. (laughs) I love that. It just shows the wonder and the glory of Jesus, that those who spent time just wanted to keep writing, that those who knew him just couldn't share enough about it. And I think that's kind of a picture of what heaven's going to be like for us. I mean, many of us are bored by heaven right now. We think we'll be in terry cloth robes strumming a harp on a cotton cloud. I'm not looking forward to that heaven, but I'm looking forward to an adventure, an eternal adventure with God where Jesus is just showing me more and more of who he is, where there's discovery, where there's joy. He's my greatest joy. There's no, I'm not hindered anymore by sin or selfishness or independence. I'm found by him and I'm living in his family and I'm exploring a new heaven and a new earth with God forever. I mean, that is something to look forward to. And I'm gonna know more as he shows more. We all are gonna learn and grow more. But he says this, But these are written, in other words, I've shared this with you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's talk about this because there's two things that we're called to respond to the identity of Jesus. The first one is this, we're called to believe in him. And what does it mean to believe in him? Because to be honest, if we look at the scriptures, even Satan and his demons know who Jesus is. And they, more than any of us, have seen him work and act. They know his identity. They ran and fled or came out of people when the name of Jesus and his identity was professed. And so they know who he is. There's no question in their minds that Jesus is God. 
But what does it mean for us to believe in him? What's the difference between knowing that he is or even believing that he is God and really believing in him? Well, here's the difference. It's it's that we realize that Jesus came to live a life we couldn't live and that he lived that life for me and for you. See, any of us could kind of build up the case of what makes a person righteous, what makes us good enough to get into heaven. I mean, the human mind has always been trying to explore that possibility. And, and we look around us, and we look for people who are worse than us, and we go, as long as I'm not like that person. Sorry, Jen, I didn't mean to, you know, I'll go point to an empty seat next time. Okay, and as long as I'm not like that person, I'm, I'm not that bad, I'm good enough. And you know what we can always find? I mean, serial killers have people they look at, and I'm not as bad as that person. But you know, God never compares us with people sitting around us or next to us or people below us. So we think. We are compared with Christ. Okay, the news just got worse, right? (laughs) We're worse off than we imagine, right? We are worse off than we think, but God loves us more than we can imagine. And that God sent his only son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life. And Jesus lived a perfect life because we can't. See, none of us deserve this. And we aren't here because we lived a really good life this week. I'm not here because I'm better than anyone out in the world today. I'm here because I believe Jesus lived a perfect life for me. And then the second thing is that I believe that Jesus died a final death on the cross for me. That when he died on the cross, he wasn't just showing a picture of humility. He just wasn't showing a picture of injustice of what happened to him. He was showing his love in that he died in my place. That I deserved God's judgment. I deserved to spend eternity in hell away from God, separated without hope. But Jesus loved me enough to live a perfect life and then put himself in my place and he paid the price for my sin. Because he was the holy, righteous one from God, he was the only one who could die for my sins and satisfy the wrath of God. And Jesus did that for me. And then he rose again on the third day. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to defeat death so that life could be given in his name, so that his identity as God then could be a life giver because he himself defeated death. There would be nothing in life or death that could defeat us because Jesus rose from the dead, not only for eternal life, but also for, from the victory over sin in my life. Jesus is that. And so when you come to Jesus and you believe in him, you believe that there's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to deserve it. We don't, unlike most of the religious systems of the world, we don't just try to be good. Christianity isn't based on trying. It's entrusting in Jesus to do the heavy lifting for us. And he did. He lived. He died. He rose again for us. If you've never made that profession in your own life, I want to encourage you to do that right now. Now, by faith, just say, God, I get it. Thank you. Thank you for relieving me from all this stress over the course of my life. I've looked over my shoulder. What did I do to mess with you today? What have I done to deserve this life? And it's not in me. It's not, I can't earn my way. Jesus did this for me. I received that as a gift. Thank you, Jesus, for living, dying, and rising from the dead. I turn from my sin to trust in you. I believe in you. 
These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then look at the second response. Once you believe in him, then our our desire then is to order our life around him. Because it says, and when you believe that you would have life in his name. Life in his name literally means that you order your life around Christ. This is very anti-American faith. American faith says, okay, my dream in life, smoking hot wife, beautiful kids, I mean, excelling kids, greater than all the other kids so that I wear will have the bumper sticker, my kid is an honor student on the back of my car. A beautiful house, I mean, wonderful house, great cars, a great savings account, and Jesus. See, we want Jesus to fit around us, and we get ticked when Jesus asks us to change. We would rather change Jesus than change ourselves. That is American, but it's not godly. That's normal to have what I call Pedro Christianity. Have you ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? When Pedro was running for president, he said, vote for me and all your wildest dreams will come true. I love that. Because we do that. We're looking for heroes. That if we have them in our lives, all our wildest dreams will come true. And we kind of scoff at that as if that could happen with a senior class president. It just can't happen. So when we come to Jesus, we give up our right to live however we want to live. We do that. You're not going to hear that many places. But Jesus asks for us to come and die to ourselves so that we might live for him. And that means that we order everything around him, our time, our energy, our checkbook, everything, everything, our morality, everything. And we are not perfect people. We, I mean, talk to my wife, okay? I am not a perfect man, but I have a grid. I have a person named Jesus who I'm trying to follow, and he is perfect. That's the mark of a follower of Jesus, imperfect people following a perfect Jesus. Order your life around him. And find the joy that's found away from yourself. You're chained to selfishness. You're chained to life on your own terms. You're chained on the American dream that really is a dream for only just a few. It's not a reality, but Christ gives life and life in his name. I want you to watch this uh, story from a woman named Priscilla and her journey with Jesus. Take a look at this story. My name is Priscilla, and I grew up in a small town in West Texas. I was raised by my grandparents and went to church every weekend with them. I had a relationship with Christ. I knew what was right, I knew what was wrong, and I always wanted to do what pleased my grandparents, and I wanted to make them proud. Graduated from high school and went to college. College happened, and um, I found myself in a relationship um, that was against my morals, it was against who I was, and I knew that this is not the path that Christ had in store for me. The relationship was great. Um, We had a lot of great times, created lots of memories, but I noticed things were starting to change, and 
We, you know, conversations would turn into disagreements, turn into arguments, and I knew we're, we were growing apart. I prayed to God and, and I asked Him, what do I do? How do I fix this? How can I keep this relationship intact? And He spoke to me and He said, get out of this relationship. This is not who I have for you. This is not the path that I have um, written for you. And I fought against him. I fought against what he was saying to me. And I said, I'll show you. I, I will make this work. The end of the day, it was not working. We ended up going our separate ways. I was at the lowest of lows. I was broken. I had nowhere to turn but to Christ. And it was at that moment that I knew that I needed Him in my life. I knew that He was the only one that could take this off of my shoulders. And I knew that He was the only way that my life could turn around. And at that point, I surrendered. I gave Him my all. I surrendered all of my strongholds. And I asked Him for forgiveness. I asked again for healing, for strength. He answered that. He took all of that away from me. He sought me through all the pain, and He has not let me down since. Once I surrendered to Him, my life changed. It's changed completely. I'm happy. I have joy in my life. I know who I am again. I'm doing so many things through Christ that I never imagined that I could do. And without Him, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And that is what I'm grateful for. I am blessed every single day, and there's not one day that my heart doesn't desire to, go, to grow stronger in my faith and grow stronger with Him. I was baptized, and so at that point, that's when it was, you know, a new beginning for me, a new, a new life, and a life with Christ. Yeah. So what about you? Where are you this morning when it comes to the identity of Christ? If Jesus were to ask you, who do you say that I am? Would you be willing to say you are the Christ, the Son of God? I just want to encourage you on that because here, it's, Priscilla's story is the reason why Fellowship Bibles is here. We're here to help people find and follow Jesus. And it's my prayer that today, if you've been searching, you have found Jesus. You found for, for the authentic person that he is, God in the flesh, and that you've put your faith in him to live for you, to die for you, and to rise from the dead for you. If you're here and you're um, a younger person and you've come here or you're here and you're dating someone who's part of fellowship and they kind of drug you along with them today and you're still trying to figure this out, I just would want to encourage you, search the scriptures because the scriptures will show you the authentic Christ. You will see him and God promises not to hide himself from you. If you keep yourself from the word of God and just go out in the world, you're, you're not going to find him there. He's specifically revealed in the scriptures. Seek out the scriptures and you will find him. It's my prayer that you would do that. 
Others of you, you want to make today one of those days you go public, public with your faith. And we offer this every third weekend of the month for you to get baptized. Maybe you were baptized as a baby, but not as a believer. The scriptures call us to be baptized as believers because it's a picture of an inward reality of what Christ has done for you. I'd encourage you, get baptized. We even, if you didn't even plan for it, we have clothes there you can change into with a towel so you don't go home wet. And we can baptize you as you profess the person of Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time, for each person who is in this room. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have freedom to, to just move in each of our lives to make Jesus clearer and greater and bolder through us and in us. And we lift up the name of Jesus. We profess him to be the Christ, the Son of God. And Lord, we ask you to to provide a life for us and to pursue us so that we will build all of life around you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.